What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. That moral rightness of America means so much. If you are an American who has worked in post-Soviet areas, Eastern Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia, these may be countries that hate the United States, big America, you know, air quotes, but they love America. We stand for something that they don't have yet and they want it. If we abandon that, everything we do in the world becomes harder, more costly, more Americans will die. The reason more Americans didn't die was because our Afghan partners put their lives on the line to protect what we were doing because they believed in it. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Last week, the chaos of the American withdrawal from Afghanistan escalated into a catastrophe and tragedy when a suicide bombing in Kabul took the lives of over a dozen U.S. service members and nearly 200 Afghan civilians. Prior to this attack, on our August 20th weekly roundup, we talked about the various degrees of blame for the bungled withdrawal being pointed at the Biden administration, military leaders, the national security and intelligence communities, Congress, parts of the media, and leaders and officials going all the way back to the George W. Bush White House. But as the human toll climbs, and as the politics of this, both in the U.S. and in the region, are shifting rapidly... I wanted to bring in two of our friends and national security experts in a two-part series to help us all understand how we got here to begin with, what we know about what's happening now, and what comes next for Afghanistan and for America's presence and influence in the Middle East and beyond. So, joining me today in studio is Molly McHugh. Molly is a writer and researcher of Russian influence in information warfare, Her articles have appeared in Politico, Wired, The Washington Post, Lawfare, among many other publications where smart people read about global power dynamics. She's also an adjunct professor at Georgetown University and the lead author of a newsletter called GreatPower.us. Molly, welcome back to Politicology. Thanks for having me in. Alongside Molly is our friend Mark Palomaropoulos. Mark served in the CIA for 26 years in operational field and leadership assignments across the Middle East, Europe, and Asia. He is an expert in counterterrorism, covert action, and human intelligence collection, and is the author of Clarity in Crisis, Leadership Lessons from the CIA. We just spoke to Mark last month about his book, as well as his experience with Havana Syndrome, and you can find a link to that episode in the show notes. Mark, thank you so much for coming back on to talk about this. Thanks for having me. So, Mark and Molly, I know both of you have friends, colleagues, contacts you've been in touch with as all of this is unfolding. I just want to say I appreciate you taking the time to be here this morning. As we look closely at this topic, though, I want to start by giving our listeners a sense of the different vantage points at the table. So can each of you say a little bit more than I did about the relevant dimensions of your experience and background with which you approach Afghanistan? Molly, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, for for everybody, I think roughly in our, we'll, we'll call it an expanded age spectrum, but, sure. you know, I, I moved to D.C. a week after 9-11. I was supposed to fly here the morning of, and obviously that didn't happen, right? So my entire career has been 
which is not really focused on Af- only Afghanistan or the Middle East, right? It sort of started in the Middle East. Then I was in Africa for a while. Then I got back to the Soviet stuff um, or the post-Soviet stuff. Uh, but it's been sort of bookended by this story that we have all been living inside, which is the post but it's I don't want to call it the post 9/11 era because I think it's the wrong way to phrase it but sort of this era starting with the war in Afghanistan and then the war into Iraq and how that point really became this diversion point for all of the fractures we feel now in alliance structures how America views itself in the world all of these other things um, and so while in the last decade I've been primarily focused around – decade plus been focused around you know, sort of the Russian periphery, which is mm-hmm. what I've been on, on to talk with you about before. Yeah. It's this, this struggle of – if you want to call it great power competition, but the realignment of what the world is now, mm-hmm. Russia, China, the US, all these other powers who are trying to map out what influence is now – where is their projection of power? What does all of this mean? It plays out in these places. And I think um, what's been so interesting to have learned working in places like Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine, the Baltic states, which for many people are like, where's that? Oh, it's that yeah. little thing like way over there. And I get that. Um, and and to hear the way the Biden administration is now talking about Afghanistan and the way the Trump administration talked about Afghanistan and I think the way the previous administrations talked about Afghanistan as this sort of – peripheral thing, this like shadow on the edge of a map where do we really have interest? Does it really matter beyond the immediate threat of, you know, Osama bin Laden hanging out in a cave? Um, And I think we really need to understand that this is the place where this competition happens. It's in Mm. these places that we can't define on the maps. It's not shiny long tables in Beijing and Washington and Brussels and Moscow. Um, If we can't figure out what our vision for ourselves in the world is, what our view of power in the world is, uh, what we want ourselves to be perceived as in the world, in these places, and how we work in these places, um, in Afghanistan, in Georgia, in the Baltic states, all these places where there's critical aspects of, of competition that we either get right or wrong on, every day, um, then we're just totally missing the point. Mm-hmm. And you know that I feel we're behind the wave in that. Yeah. Um, and... and uh, we really need to figure that out. But that's sort of my context on Afghanistan, which is I drift in and out of aspects of Afghanistan as my work brings me sort of back toward that area. Um, and a lot of that has been focused around Russia and Russian influence in Afghanistan and their work with the Taliban, which has been, you know, multi-year and and anybody who claims otherwise is not paying attention. Um, but I think for me, that's the context is uh, there's some aspects of what we've done in Afghanistan that have been wildly successful and in this in this bigger walk awayism that's happening now, the discussion has become, oh, it was always going to be like this. Afghanistan's always going to be an asshole country, you yeah. know, like it's a bunch of cave people. Who cares? And that's just such a lie in terms of what we have done there, what yeah. Americans have done there, you know, civil society people, military and otherwise. So much happened there that was good underneath the broader, probably strategic failure. Um and the fact that we're just like shitting on all of that for the sake of being like, whew, somebody yeah. else's problem now um, is really damaging to how we evaluate all these other things that are much more important probably than how we view Afghanistan. So yeah. that was a really long way of <laughs> sort yeah. of explaining why I care about this. Yeah. But there's so many aspects of success that we have, uh, that things that we need 
in terms of irregular warfare, unconventional warfare, special warfare, um, that we've sort of played with in Afghanistan that have been really important testing grounds for us in all these other places. I don't think Americans really get to understand this because yeah. we don't really talk about what's happening in Afghanistan most of the time. But it's so important. And the way that we are walking away is sabotaging ourselves, abandoning capabilities, um, and really uh, changing what is going to come next in terms of how we think about all of this competition in these gray places um, in ways that I think are going to be really damaging unless we sort of re-catch the ball on this one and and carry it forward. And now I'll shut up. Sorry, Mark. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it is early on a Monday. And so uh, there's a lot to, there's a <laughs> lot to get to. Um, Mark, how about you? Sure. So, well, first of all, I love listening to Molly's wisdom and, and, and these, these, uh, these sessions are often better served at the, at the Vienna Inn, of course. Yes, of um, course. Over some beer and chili cheese dogs. So, um, but, but I actually, I think that, you know, today is actually going to be really interesting because there's really two d- different perspectives on this. You know, I have more of the kind of knuckle drag, knuggle dragger. You know you what know, the breeze smells like pre- well, in, like you've, so you've spent time my, on my, that. Soil. My entire career has been Afghanistan, yeah. you know, again, kind of going in and out, but I started off in 1993 on the Afghan desk. Um, I remember the, 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 you know, the rise of the Taliban in 1994. I remember when they took power, um, in, in 1996, uh, the Afghan desk means by at, the way, at CIA. Yes. Yeah, so okay. I joined CIA in 1993 and, and, and trust me, the Afghan desk was not the, uh, the, uh, the prominent, uh, uh, place for, uh, you know, for a rock star, uh, officer to come in. I think there was only several of us, but what was interesting for me, you know, uh, was, um, watching the, you know, the rise of certainly the, the, the rise of the Taliban, um, and we, of course, were also started tracking the what we called the Afghan Arabs, um, and these were, you know, uh, the the Arab fighters from uh, around the region who had kind of flocked to Afghanistan. There was ten thousand plus in number. Ended up being, you know, parts of Coral Al Qaeda later on. Um, but then, but then, so so that's where I started. I, of course, I moved on. To, I was a uh, an officer in the in our you know in, in the Near East. Um, went over some, for some overseas assignments, but then after the events of September 11th, I went to Kandahar as a case officer in early 2002. Um, and which is really kind of a seminal moment for me, um, not only kind of my first, you know, experience in, in what was, you know, it was a combat zone, but also some incredible, um, uh, you know, scenes and vignettes that I remember very well that, that, you know, that I'll share because it gives kind of a sense of what the Taliban's all about. So we had actually found the widow of, of an agent of ours, uh, who was quite famously hung in the soccer stadium in Kandahar, if you remember those scenes. Um, and I remember, you know, uh, with a special forces team going to uh, the, you know, the mud hut the, where, where the widow um, lived and, and making this kind of what I thought was a big dramatic presentation. Um, you know, I don't know if she ever was going to get the death benefits, but but it certainly showed to me kind of the, you know, what the Taliban was all about. So that was uh, in early 02. And then later on between 2011 and, and 2012, and incidentally in between, always working counterterrorism. So I was, that was kind of my forte. And, and whether I was posted in any country, you know, uh, uh, around the region, you know, every, everything did point back to Afghanistan and Pakistan, where core al-Qaeda was, mm. where we believed, you know, Osama bin Laden, Ayman Zawahiri were, were located. Um, but ultimately, I spent a year then, 2011 to 2012, as head of uh, one of CIA's bases in eastern Afghanistan in Paktika province, um, a base where, you know, several years before I arrived, Time magazine on their cover said, this is the most dangerous place on the planet. So we were in combat with al-Qaeda and the Taliban every single day. Um, you know, I, I never had an alarm clock. We were rocketed from across the, the mountain in Pakistan with 107 millimeter rockets. I would be on Skype calls with my kids and the whole base is shaking. And it, that was actually kind of normal, which was a little weird. Um, but ultimately I spent a year there. And so, 
you know, Afghanistan for me also is not only part of the work experience, but it's also personal. And and let me just share that. Yeah. When, you know, CIA does have a very different perspective on this, especially officers who served in the bases because of the following. You know, we were not holed up in a USG facility um, mm-hmm. in a capital. Uh, you know, my base was a couple Americans and several hundred Afghan in, in you know, we called them indig, indig- indigenous units. So we lived with them. We ate with them. We went out and patrol with them. Um, we are at the tip of the spear, you know, uh, you know, 7,000 miles away from the United States and certainly um, a hell of a long way from Kabul. And so, you know, when I see us as we try to rescue our Afghan allies, this is personal. Um, you know, I wouldn't be here today and many of my colleagues wouldn't be here today. They were in firefights. They were tremendously fierce fighters. And here's, here's, a, here's a great vignette. I served for one year there and I come back and, and people look at me and say, wow, thank you for your service, which mm-hmm. kind of irritates me just, just because. Um, uh, uh, and it was, sure, there was incredibly dangerous times. Our Afghan indigenous units are, were in combat for about 15 straight years. They never stopped. So think about that. So a U.S. you know a U.S. Uh, some member of the intelligence community or a U.S. soldier does some incredible things for maybe a one year stu- stint. Many other people did multiple stints, but these Afghan indig units never stopped. They were in combat for years, and so and and they frankly protected, you know, helped, assisted, um, you know, uh, U.S. forces or the intelligence community or, or you know a, a mix of the two. And so I have a tremendous sense of loyalty. Um, uh, uh, to these Afghan uh, you know, allies of ours. And so I think that this kind of this whole endeavor is also very personal for a lot of us, um, particularly probably in the special operations community and the intelligence community where we work with really selective Afghan units and we lived with them. And there's nothing like, you know, being, you know, brothers and sisters in arms yeah. um, for a year with people on the front line, um, you know, uh, uh, to, to to really kind of foster that sense of camaraderie. So pretty personal for me and 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 you know the events of the last couple of weeks have been have been distressing for a number of reasons i think on the counterterrorism field um, i think we made a mistake in a full withdrawal but we can talk about that later but then just personally in terms of getting out um, our afghan allies um, those with, with, with you know that, that have the, the special immigrant visa status meaning they did help us they were vetted um, they deserved to come to the united states and we fell apart completely in the us government's ability to get them all out um, you know i think that's it's all it's all personal and it's also worth noting for our listeners, I said this on the last episode that uh, that we were talking about your book on, but when you left the CIA, you talk about your rank as having been equivalent to a four-star general in the military. So I think it's under it's, it's, it's really helpful, not only that it's personal, but this has been your entire career and you left with uh, a very high rank. And so there's a lot of authority that comes with um, your perspective here. Maybe my old colleagues would, would uh, <laughs> disagree with that. I think, no, I mean, it's, you know, I, I was there for a long time. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we've got a lot to get to when it comes to withdrawal and execution. But before we do that, um, I think it's important to give our listeners a, you know, all the context to remind them of the context uh, for this entire topic. And it's been nearly 20 years since the 2001 September 11th attacks. And I'm 37 years old. I'm about to 38. I've seen in my lifetime multiple wars begin, but I don't really think I've seen one end. And I think there are a lot of people like me who you know are seeing a lot of what's happening right now with no precedent or context. And so to begin with, I want to talk about basically the last 20 years uh, vis-a-vis Afghanistan, beginning with September 11th. And so, Mark, why don't you begin by um, just reminding us why we went into Afghanistan specifically in the first place, um, what our goals were there, what gave the war political legitimacy, 
um, both in the U.S. and around the world, because it it was fairly sort of universally agreed that this was a good move uh, at the time. And then let's let's briefly walk through that timeline if we could, so that everyone we can bring everyone up to speed and where we are now. Can you? Sure, of course. Cool. So so again, I think starting well, there's there was there was always a history um, of, of you know the Afghan mujahideen supporting. Uh, uh, well, first, you know, they were they were integral in, in defeating the Soviet Union, um, but then you know, flocks of of Afghan Arabs and the Afghan Mujahideen kind of came to Afghanistan, um, uh, you know, in these in these really chaotic years uh, after the Najibullah regime fell. There was a it was a brutal civil war, but ultimately, in the period between 1996 and 2001, when the Taliban took over, you know, Afghan could be Afghanistan could be considered an ungoverned space where terrorist groups were allowed to. To congregate, and in fact, the Taliban harbored them. So let's make no mistake. Again, allies from uh, the, the fight against uh, uh, the Soviet Union. So ultimately, you know, after the and it, it, this really doesn't start on 9/11. Mm. Um, remember that you know Al Qaeda was a group you know dedicated uh, to attacking the United States. There was you know uh, bombings in 1998 uh, against two of our embassies in Africa that were the responsibility of, uh, uh, of Al Qaeda. And so it's a group that was dedicated to to hitting the United States uh, overseas. Um, not not in in Afghanistan itself. Obviously, we had no presence there, and so that, that, is, that is important when we think about. In fact, later on, we'll talk about what to do about the Taliban now. But ultimately, um, the events of September 11th drove everything. Where you know, Qur Al Qaeda, they planned the events of 9/11. Um, obviously, the attack on, on on the Twin Towers in New York City, um, the Pentagon, um, and then the one airline, of course, that went down in in Pennsylvania. And so, this was a clear case of of a terrorist group located in a certain area, um, harbored by uh, the Taliban, which was an extremist kind of almost medieval, you know, militant cult um, that ran the government, um, and the United States, I think, uh, was seen around the world as, as you know, having a very legitimate um, a reason to to go into Afghanistan and uh, and and you know find and kill those responsible for this. Very simply, it's a counterterrorism mission. Started off with you know very fa- small teams of CIA officers and special forces. Um, again, for that reason, in that the Taliban were our enemy, they were harboring Al Qaeda, and then we had to go find uh, the, the Al Qaeda members um, who still had training camps there, who were still there, and who were ultimately responsible for 9/11. And so, purely a counterterrorism mission, which of course, then over the years, kind of evolved into something else. But but make no mistake, you know, um, there was certainly political there was legitimacy within the United States amongst huge support amongst the American public mm-hmm. and huge uh, support our, amongst our allies. Yeah, at one point there were more than forty countries, I think, involved in sure. this operation, and the UN Security Council also sort of right. blessed it. Can I mean, t- I mean, it's one of those things in which you know the the events, what happened, was so egregious. Yeah. I mean, and just as a, as a vignette, you know, I was, and I have to be careful on how I say this. I was in New York City at the time. My daughter's daycare center was at Five World Trade Center. Um, we actually weren't there that day. <sighs> Um, but so, but for for those of us, uh, you know, at, at CIA, this was again, this was personal. I can't, I, I you know, there was, I don't know anyone who didn't want to go. Yeah. Um, uh, but ultimately, you know, there, there was the international response was really incredible. You know, not only from our traditional allies like like the Brits, but or like the like the British government, but from you know, a, a, you know, across the world, as you said, this incredible coalition. Um, because you know, if there was ever you know an instance of, and I, and I hate to use this in moral terms, but right or wrong, mm. you know, the United States was brutally attacked, and we had a legitimate reason to to respond. Okay, and so what were our goals then there in Afghanistan when we went in? So it was certainly to to you know to find, um, fix and finish, um, uh, you know Al Qaeda. Okay. Um, as simple as that. And as well, and, and and make no mistake, we held the Taliban responsible. 
um, for harboring them. So it was, you know, it was kind of a dual goal of, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, replacing Taliban as the as the government in Afghanistan. We did that, and and again, finding those responsible, um, not only the leadership but also the core Al Qaeda members. There were training camps all over a a Afghanistan, um, and you know, we knew that there was kind of additional attacks being planned. Um, so it was, it was, you know, it was fairly simple and narrow uh, counterterrorism goal, and and that evolved. Okay, <laughs> I think yeah. it's, it's fair to say that, and and I think that you know when we take a look at. Um, you know, as the history is written in Afghanistan, I mean, that's going to, there's, there's not going to be a debate on whether we should have gone in or not. The debate is going to be what happens after several years. You know, why did mm -hmm. we kind of shift towards more nation building, which yeah. as Molly said before, we accomplished some really amazing things. Yeah. Um, but there, there is that critical kind of point in which the, the goals did shift. There's no doubt about that. So Molly, can you take us from there and then begin to step forward into when that mission began to change uh, into nation building and uh, and maybe bring us a little bit more further into the future? Yeah, I mean the timeline is super hazy, and that's the thing. Yeah. Like even if you go back and try to put it together, like where these, but I think, and at some point, all of Afghanistan kind of got or our goals there kind of got mushed up with mm. what we were thinking about Iraq in a very unhelpful way for both. Um, and I think you know now what you'll hear from many military commanders, um, uh, General Hodges, Ben Hodges, who uh, was a former um, UCOM commander, had a really thoughtful piece about the mistakes uh, in Afghanistan. And and one of them being the, we never should have lost focus and and done this Iraq thing. Um, so there's, there's a lot of this sort of, where did all this go wrong? But I do think it's this aspect of, as Mark was saying, the problem of the ungoverned space. And despite the fact the Taliban was the thing the view of Afghanistan really was that it was this squishy area that had no real control. It was, you know, if you look at the borders and that whole post-Soviet Stan, Afghanistan leading into Pakistan region, it's like these crazy lines, stuff swirls together. Mm. You're like, where are we? It's Is like it Tajikistan? Vacuum. Is it Uzbekistan? But it's very tribal. And, and so even when there's national borders, there's weirdness within that, right? And so I think the idea then became, okay, there's this ungovernable space and if we walk out of it, we're just leaving it open again for the next Taliban, the next whatever to reconstitute. So what can we put here that makes that less likely? And it wasn't, in many respects, a totally crazy idea in the sense that elements of Afghanistan in the past uh, had been quite liberal. There had been, you know, real universities in Kabul where women didn't wear burqas or, you know, uh, In the past, meaning pre-U.S. involvement. Um, in like the seventies, like pre pre Charlie Wilson's war phase, right? Uh, pre rise of of weird Soviet warfare in in Afghanistan. There were all these elements of Afghanistan that were considered like more civilized, had universities, had real life, had culture, whatever. And then there was the more tribal stuff that was less developed in other places. But the idea was sort of, can we put that back? Like, can we make a center to the idea of a democratic-ish Afghanistan? that can then be the thing that we reconstitute some kind of national security force around that can then hold this space. So that there's something in it so that these guys just can't walk in from Iran or wherever and like decide that they're going to build a terrorist training camp here. So I don't think that, and I, I still think that concept was the right one in the sense that you can't just leave it. Something has to stay here. Mm, <laughs> you can't just leave yeah. it open. Um, but the way that that was instituted and probably the how, I think, became um, – it was fits and starts. The problem with all of this stuff is 
this is not a two-year project. It is not a one-budget-year project. It is not a one-term-of-a-president project. It requires understanding that you win these wars over decades um, and that you have to stay committed to it. You have to work with your partners on the basis that you're going to be there for a while so that they feel that confidence of what they're doing. I'm not sure we always achieved that because there were so many of these. uh, It was so pinned to our security presence and there were so many of these for political reasons in the United States. You know, we're in, we're out, we're drawing down. Oh, now we're surging back in again. And this kind of goes, you know, there's like three different surge periods in Afghanistan where we kind of just tried to leave and then had to go back and every one of those looked bad. And every time I think there was a less helpful concept of what our military footprint in the country should be. Um, you know, Mark talked a lot about the special operations forces, um, but in particular, the special forces groups that work there, the whole concept of special forces globally is that they build special capabilities and local partner forces. So they're the guys creating more special operations capability on the ground from local partner forces. Um, and I think in many respects, it probably always should have been a more of a special war, of an irregular war, of an unconventional war focusing on these capabilities and that those that, that we were building locally than this, I don't know, whatever the broader conventional war with a huge U.S. footprint was, um, that's harder to do. And it does require this. We're going to be here for 20 years and we're going to have, you know, groups that are here, uh, de- longer deployments to work with these partners. You need constant presence of, of similar faces on the ground, um, things that special forces can do very well when they're backed up. But I think we kind of just... You know, it was the, we have this big hammer, let's throw the whole big hammer at this nail. And I'm not sure it was always the right answer. And that then became, as we were in Iraq doing other things, as, you know, I think there's this U.S. concept overall when there was Afghanistan and Iraq and too much going on and so much money. I mean, absorbing the amount of money that we have spent on these things is really hard. And then the, the the partner most capable of being able to absorb that money is the military. So we ended up in the rack in Afghanistan using the extremely innovative, extremely quick, the ability to pivot, the ability to implement quickly, things that USAID, NGOs, the State Department cannot hope to do within a year from concept to mm. execution. You know, we just handed the military a problem set that is not their job. Mm. And it was like – go figure out economic security in Kunduz province in Afghanistan. And they're like, okay, you know, and they would go and they would do some stuff. And some of it was really useful and some of it wasn't, but it was just this, we relied on the best tool we had, which was not the right tool. And what we were asking of them, I mean, they did some great stuff, but what we were asking of them was not their mission, which then made their footprint huge. And then there was all this, why are there all these guys in Afghanistan? And um, I just think, you know, looking at Afghanistan, looking at at Iraq, but then looking at this broader era, because I think Americans have this very navel gazy view of the last 20 years, yeah. in particular, uh, people who are even a few years younger than me, which would include you mm-hmm. and, and, and below. Um, but where, you know, so much of this is defined by the Iraq war and the idea that this was a mistake and the conspiracies about what the war was and whatever else. Um, but, uh, and you hear it in the way the Biden administration talks, where they've tried to put out this, no, 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 you don't understand the withdrawal from Afghanistan is the end of the post-9-11 era, which by that they really mean this Iraq war conundrum that we have faced since. Um, and that's how I think in the U.S. we're still looking at this era. 
But it has not been, it is not that. Nobody else in the world thinks of this as the post 9-11 era or the post-Iraq war era or the Iraq war era or whatever. It's the broader dynamic of realignment from, and what ha- decisions in the Iraq war and what that meant about America and its power projection uh, are a, po- a component of this. But it's this broader realignment of the world, the rise of China, the the return of Russia as a disruptive actor globally, um, uh, the use of irregular disruptive forces all over the world by a variety of powers, how terrorism uh, and and you know non-state actors fit into that. This is the broader dynamic. And if we try to fra- like if we try to conce- conceptualize everything in this framework of the Iraq War was bad, so bad. Um, and and we need to end everything related to it because we just need to like reset, quote unquote, and move on, then we're just totally missing the point of what we actually need to be looking at. And uh, it's a really controversial view. Everybody wants everything to be about the Iraq war. But um, it, you know, since since the Iraq war, there's been this very casual, bigotry, really, in how many people talk about these in-between places of, mm. ugh, these Arabs are never going to be ready for democracy. Mm. And it became totally normal after the Iraq war uh, to say things like this, this idea of they're not ready. You know, these all these peoples aren't ready yeah, for self-governance. That. And if you think about what you're saying, it's just sort of like, huh. And you can crap all over George W. Bush all you want, you know, there's a lot of things in there yeah. <laughs> that have some validity. Um, but when he talked about human freedom, the the that the United States plays a role in the world in showing people that they can govern themselves, that they can have the types of systems that we have, that we have prospered under and been safe under and done well under, that was right. And so when when people try to cast aside all of this, what you end up with was there was an Arab Spring and uh, a, a democratic uprising in virtually every North African and Arab country. And we did jack squat in all of it because of this idea that it was wrong to try to support democratic forces in the world. And that's just wrong. Like, mm. what, are, what are we doing if, if we're not – like, this is our power projection. Mm. And if we step back from this in this way that we are currently doing in this Afghanistan thing and say – uh, as the White House has said, you know, where we need to focus on our interests, not our values, we lose the shield. Guys mm-hmm. like Mark and all of his his compatriots who are sent into these backwater places with two colleagues, go, you know, go hang out with these 400 locals and try to figure out what's going on in intelligence and tell the United States what we need to do. If they go out in the world without this incredible armor we have, which is this moral righteousness of the country. And people believe it. Like, yes, the Iraq war, and yes, Bush sucked, and yes, whatever crap. But, like, that moral rightness of America means so much. If you you are an American who has worked in, you know, post-Soviet areas, Eastern Europe, Africa, Latin America, Asia, these may be countries that hate the United States, big America, you know, air quotes, but they love America. Like, because here right matters. Well, and, and that we stand for something that they, they don't have yet and they want it. And if we abandon that, everything we do in the world becomes harder, more costly, more Americans will die. And as Mark said, the reason more Americans didn't die was because our Afghan partners put their lives on the line to protect what we were doing because they believed in it. And when the White House said... They didn't want it enough. They didn't fight for it. F off. We're out of here. 
that statement is crushing to every local partner we work with in every country where stuff is hard, where they are working with us and it's hard and they're there anyway, even though they know that puts a target on them. And so just in the framework of all of this, where everything is not going to be, we are no longer in an era of conventional warfare, of lining up the forces and the tanks and the things. Everything's going to be weird. Maybe the, the, the most you know, normal war you're going to see is going to be some weird, like, heavily droned thing, like, in Nagorno-Karabakh, you know, last year. But um, uh, war is now very unconventional. And if we can't pivot to this with all of our elements of national power, diplomacy, aid, military, um, then, you know, we're going to be sitting here having the same conversation in 20 years and China and its friends and partners like Russia and the Taliban are going to have a lot more influence than us. Yeah. And that endangers our whole country. Yeah. So anything you want to add to that, Mark? I think that, that, you know, one of the founding kind of, you know, uh, or foundational principles that I always had in all my, you know, uh, time overseas um, was that concept of America being a shining city on a hill. I mean, I believe that Yeah, might sound hokey, um, you know, and, and, and people might mock that, but I didn't. And my colleagues didn't. And you and I have discussed the constant tension, inherent tension between American interests and American values and the way we pursue both of those abroad. And, and uh, your colleague, John Seifer has mentioned on multiple occasions, how the, the here right matters, basically America standing for something is essential to the CIA's ability to recruit uh, agents in other places and get them to betray right. the country and give us information. And, and so, so I, I love telling this story. I was in a Middle Eastern country. It was a country hostile to our interests, small embassy presence. And I remember walking down the street one day and looking up at uh, the, Amer- the silhouette of the American flag at night. Um, and I looked up there and, and two things came to mind. First was I was thinking, wow, well, this is pretty amazing being here, just a bunch of Americans. But even more important, I knew that the people in that country would walk by the embassy and look at the flag and, and know that it meant something. And that, to me, really has been a driving principle uh, for me, again, to be that, that shining city on the hill. And it does matter. And, you know, this is not to kind of get into a debate on American exceptionalism. Um, but ultimately, it's to talk about that, that America does really mean something and people do look to us. <clears throat> you know, one of the things that as I sat across from the Kurds in Iraq, um, from the Syrians or, or from, you know, our Afghan allies, is that as a CIA officer, you, you know, very oftentimes, you know, you know we have a unique um, uh, not only perspective, but unique access uh, uh, to foreigners. Simple yeah. as that. You know, we're not necessarily holed up in a USG facility, um, or if we are, we're always on the street, you know, talking to folks. Um, and and so, kind of American democratic ideals and norms really do matter. Just it's 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 as simple as that. So for me, and I think for Molly as well, when we see the Biden administration acting what Trumpian. Yeah, the statements have come out you know, as as they. It, it sounds like we're talking about real politic again. I mean, that maybe that's not even Trumpian, um, but but ultimately, um, it's something that really has I think surprised a lot of us who were supportive of of the Biden administration and kind of almost a, you know a new tack towards international affairs. You know, where's the empathy here? Yeah. Um, you know, where are these ideals of of democracy and human rights that Biden really ran on? When it comes to Afghanistan now, you know, you know, a lot of his statements. And the statements of the administration as a whole sound a lot like what would come out, what would have come out of the Trump administration. And to me, um, that has absolutely been shocking. So before we get to uh, decision to withdrawal, I want to first of all, I want to separate the two: the decision to withdraw and then the execution. To mm-hmm. Those two. But before we get to either of those things, I want to I want to lead us up to 
how we arrived at this question, which I think we've been wrestling with for some number of years, right? Whether and how and when to withdraw from Afghanistan. Molly, you mentioned multiple surges and, oh, we want, you know, multiple attempts. We're in, we're out, we're we're in, we're we're out. It's unclear. And so um, I often think about, ever since you and I had this discussion, I often think about the way you described the pincer of isolationism. Mm -hmm. And first of all, it'd it'd be great if you could sort of reprise that for this conversation, because I think it's a really insightful framing of how, that isolationist tendency uh, on both the right and the left in the the American right and the American left um, are sort of aligned, but for different reasons. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder, as you have observed that trend, how did it influence U.S. domestic politics and policymakers' views on Afghanistan, whether or not and when and how to withdraw from Afghanistan and what that would look like? And basically talk about the shift in public opinion over the last, you know, however many number of years is relevant that brought us to this point where, okay, Trump is the one who decided that we're going to do this and then Biden inherits the deal, right? How do we get up to that point? And then let's look at um, that decision to withdraw and, and execution afterwards. Many, many complex ways to think. But I think, you know, look, I think the 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 sort of the pincher of isolationism, yeah. as you put it, which is a good way of putting it, but um, you put it that way. We, call it, we call it the horseshoe <laughs> a lot too. Um, but you have this on the on the left, it becomes we have no right to act in the world. How we do, America, how dare we influence other yeah, cultures? And we're ways terrible. That, yeah. right. You know why should we like Iraq War? Blah blah blah. Like why should we have any moral standing in the world? Like we should just sit at home and navel gaze and build our own stuff. And don't get me wrong, we should invest more in American infrastructure and build yeah. our schools yeah, and all yeah, these yeah. things. But the idea that like by pulling out of Afghanistan, all that money is just gonna like get squished into a domestic budget. No, it's going to get cut out completely. Like that is not how Congress works anyway. Um, but this, this fundamental moral gap, this belief that America is flawed. So America has no role in determining outcomes in the world. So we have no right to act in the world is on the left and on the right. And that's become very active after Mm -hmm. the Iraq war in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, and on the right, uh, as the Iraq war sort of became a thing everyone had to back away from and this like, oh, interventionism abroad is bad and maybe we don't care about democracy anymore, which is the opposite of the Reaganist sort of mm-hmm. view of the of the 80s and early 90s, um, it became, we have no duty to do mm-hmm. this. Like, we've done our stuff. We'll do what we can. It's not our job. But it's not our job to be sitting in Iraq trying to get, the, you know, train ladies to sell goat milk to make money. Like, this is not our job. And, and that's also where the, I think, condescension you mentioned earlier about these people aren't ready for us. Yeah, they're not ready. That, that also exists on that end of the— 100%. Okay. And um, so I think you have that sort of flanking from both sides. And as those talking points have become the catchy social media, MSNBC, Fox News, OAN, whatever the hell is on the right now, you know, the more— the more, uh, you know, party-oriented uh, media outlets, as those things have gained amplification as being popular, uh, this was particularly obviously under Trump where like his his three-word phrases of, you know, mm-hmm. build the wall, pull yeah. out the troops, whatever it was, like he had these little catchy things that just became these, you know, NATO is terrible, like all these little things that sort of embedded in the American right. But these things have really amplified. So the loudest components of uh, foreign policy have become these Mostly ill-informed, totally ridiculous, if you actually pick away at it, views of what America is in the world, which when translated into policy becomes hot garbage. Or, or even when translated into presidential candidates, oh, 100%. right? Because we had two candidates 100%. in 2020 who both, for whatever else, were aligned on this thing. So, yes. Yeah, and go ahead. Absolutely. And so I think – and, and you know, in general – 
when I first moved to this <laughs> to this city and we had to walk uphill both ways through the snow to school. Foreign policy was a very, very bipartisan topic. Mm-hmm. Yes, there were a few issues on which there was a lot of divergence, you know, Israel, a few other things, but it was a very bipartisan thing. It was not something you campaigned on really, except for a few, you know, little differences. Um, because was, there were no differences to, to right. accentuate. And same in the intelligence committees. Like, yeah. you know, you, there was no fighting. Everybody got along. The staff worked together. A lot of work was done. And um, there was always, you know, differences in execution, but agreement on what these places meant for America, how we should be there, you know, what, what, why this is important to our interests. And that really has ended. Uh, partially generational changes, partially all this other stuff. Um, but that becomes so damaging when these stupid talking points of uh, political social media talking head fame uh, are now the thing that people believe they need to say about foreign policy to raise the money, to get elected, to be a part of these dumb media machines that make them gazillionaires after they quit Congress. You know, This dynamic has become totally damaging. And I am not dismissing that there are legit politicians who actually are informed and know things who disagree with me on foreign policy, you know, Mm -hmm. obviously, yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are still some very, very serious people who invest tons of their legislative time in foreign affairs. Um, But the overall dynamic, particularly as the clown caucuses of left and right in the Congress have grown, uh, much bigger on the right than the left, obviously, but, but people who are really there for the, you know, the talking points and the fame and the profile on their Instagram account, as opposed to believing in that they need to make policy to fix this country. Uh, I think it's really gotten worse. And I think, so the, the pulling out of Afghanistan thing became very popular uh, during the Obama administration. This idea that like, especially after we killed bin Laden, it Mm -hmm. was like, okay, we did, the thing is done. done, We are definitely done here. Like pack it up. Let's get out of here. And I don't think in general, I think it's always the way that it's talked about that's really stupid. I think if we had sort of left then and left that special operations presence, the intelligence presence, the stuff that we need to have a backbone of security there and to help the Afghans uh, that we had had partnered with and and trained, um, that would have been okay. But it just became – it always became this political – nonsense. And I think during the Trump era, it, be, it was the race to the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the race to pull out all the conventional troops and the 20-year-old Marines and leave the stuff that we're not really going to talk about. It was, we're out. Every person out. We don't care about this place. Out, 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 out. And uh, Trump and Pompeo uh, really absolutely architected and negotiated a deal that uh, constructed a massive steaming pile of crap for whoever came after the, you know, the end of that deal. Mm. Um, And uh, they are totally accountable (laughs) for the construction of that deal. Um, But they just sort of, in the the race to get out, it was, there is no way to support this Afghan project we've worked on anymore. The only force in the country with with political and security legitimacy is the Taliban. They negotiated directly with the Taliban, cut out, the government that we have built and supported for 20 years with American money. So it's already like, what the f you guys doing over here? Um, and that was how they all felt. Like the minute those negotiations started, negotiations on the future of Afghanistan with the enemy force, not with the thing we had built, confidence eroded, all of the Russian and Chinese and other foreign money flooding into Afghanistan to influence dynamics on the ground, to fund the Taliban, to fund all these local warlords, uh, 
took over, you know, just like the, the an absolute betrayal of the mission that we had been working 1000%. And that left us where we are, where I think, um, I think from day one of this administration, people have been warning about this. I think they thought, I, I really do think they thought they could carry a political win of where the people who got out of Afghanistan by just moving forward with it. Um, knowing Americans, if you looked at the polling four months ago, did not care about Afghanistan. It was not anywhere on their priority list. If you said, should we yeah. end the war? The answer yeah. was absolutely. Like, why are we yeah. still even there? I really think they thought they could just do this in August and carry it through and no one would notice and it would be done. Um, but why would you take the steaming pile of crap deal negotiated by people who were disingenuous about the United States interests and implement it mm. as is? Yeah. And I think that's really the part where there's going to be a lot of questions, knowing that on January 22nd, a huge group of refugee and migration experts went to the administration and yeah. was like, if you're actually going to do this, you need to plan. Because yeah. either there's going to be a refugee catastrophe that's going to hit Europe again, or we need to do these evacuations now. Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Um, there are so many aspects that just needed to be more considered and seem to not have been planned for until this moment where – you're looking at what's happening in Kabul now and our security, our ability to leave the country is 100% dependent on security from the Taliban, which is just yeah. batshit yeah. in its core when you're looking at it. Yeah. Um, and I think just everything from the moment of we need to get out, doesn't matter how, how Trump implemented that because he 100% embraced that which as is, the true message. Which is the only way Trump would ever have yeah, implemented anything, right? It was sort of, <laughs> right, which is like, you know, just, yeah, just. And I think it was, if it was a normal, non-crazy president without crazy enablers around him, the withdrawal, even if negotiated with the Taliban, yeah. you know, would have been this reduction to a smaller footprint maintaining one or two strategic locations in the country from yeah. which we could operate, gather yeah. intelligence, um, that were, you know, strategically chosen as things that we would not be rely relying on Taliban transportation to get to, you know. Um, I think it would have been done differently. And we could say our conventional presence in Afghanistan is done, Americans happy, war done, great, fabulous. But instead it was this cross it off the list, yeah. everybody home. And I think when you combine that with other things you're hearing from this administration, certainly from the Trump administration, where there were these negotiations of withdrawal of forces from Europe, which yeah. are now not really happening. Yeah. But it just seems everybody looks at us and they see retraction yeah. in, a, in an era where projection of power – and you can define that however you want – economic power, influence, you know, information power, diplomatic power, uh, reach in the world – what they feel from America is retraction, that mm -hmm. we're looking at ourselves, that we are saying we need to look at ourselves first. And when the first thing after the disastrous beginning phase of this evacuation of Kabul started that our European allies said in multiple sources from – and people who believe in us and our stuff, we need a little less uh, America first and more America's back. Like, mm. what are we looking at here right now? Mm. We're in trouble. Yeah. And the idea that Biden did his first trip to Europe to like rah rah the allies, which is great. Everybody was so happy to have yeah. like a normal person talking yeah. to them again. Yeah. And that was enough. And now Europe on back burner, China, 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 everything. And um, that the idea that this did not 
that our allies who answered the call of Article 5 for NATO, who did an expeditionary projection of force into Afghanistan with us, which was really a new thing for NATO, uh, who have been there with us for 20 years, and all the partners of NATO, like the Ukrainians, the Georgians, all these people who want to get into NATO, who have been committing more for forces per capita than we do to these military missions to, to show that they want to be with us. The idea that we kept everyone with us there and at the end didn't really consult them, didn't tell them our plan, certainly seems like sabotaged efforts of other allies to maintain an intelligence and special operations capability in the country uh, by pulling out of certain parts of, of the country first uh, without warning so that presence could not be maintained because everything depended on the American logistics backbone in the country. Um, it leaves a real bad taste in people's mouths. Yeah. And it's again this like, it's fine if you have your vision for how this has to happen. Yeah. But when you're actually focused on sabotaging an alternative as much as implementing your own thing, yeah. people get real edgy. And I think we're in really dangerous territory with our allies, with the cleanup they're doing. They are also running evacuations. Their special forces are out running rescue operations around Afghanistan. Ours are not. And uh, you have American volunteer networks doing this work, mm -hmm. which is – and like all of these things are still going on, so I can't really talk about it in, in the graphic detail terms I would like to because I don't want anybody's operations yeah. to be compromised. But there are American volunteers running these things in ways that are absurd in terms of security, you know, what is being demanded of civilians. Uh, I mean just – this stuff is crazy and it did not need to be this way. And it shows this like inability of American power to conceptualize a limited victory within strategic failure yeah. um, in a way that we just need to look at in a very complex way. So Mark, do you see the, the dynamic of public opinion and how it has shifted over time in the, in a similar way. And, and, and I think it's important, you know, we're, we're, we're about to talk about the, you know, the, the deal, the withdrawal and the execution and, and the, the mess that has ensued. But as a backdrop, I do think it's important for our, for our listeners to understand just how much influence over this entire situation domestic politics has had and how it has shifted. Um, and so I wonder if you if you see things the same way and if there's anything you want to build on from what my Sure. Said. So I mean, well, first and foremost, public opinion should not drive foreign policy. Mm -hmm. You know, we you know, we elect our leaders, there's national security experts. You know, of course, I mean it matters yeah. what people think. Yeah. Um, it depends on, you know, kind of to the extent of, of how much they're affected by it. But, you know, the last thing you want is to have public uh, is to have foreign policy driven by polling. Um, and I think that's really important. That said, there's no doubt that that people, you know, the American people wanted us out of Afghanistan. But let's define what that means. And I think it goes back to you know something that that Molly said, and that I really believe in, and I've advocated um, for some time, is that you can have a residual force inside of Afghanistan of you know two to three thousand U.S. special operations and intelligence community personnel with other enablers. There's got to be air assets, um, you know, in an advisory capacity. And you can also say we're done. 
And that was that could be very easy to accomplish. And and I think, you know, ironically, you know, knowing some of the Trump administration team as well, that might actually have been one of their plans. And this might be a little controversial, mm-hmm. um, but just as, you know, we didn't withdraw from Syria after Trump said, let's withdraw from Syria because the U.S. military said we're not going to withdraw from Syria. Mm-hmm. I think they might have kind of pushed this same kind of plan in Afghanistan where he could have said we're out, but we're really not because we actually we are not. And let's look at what I did for a living at CIA. Yeah. Let's look what special forces do. It's the, it's the concept of defend forward. So I am forward deployed, but I'm not in a war. It's not. I mean, it, it might be a it might be a conflict zone, but we're not fighting an active war. So so I think we could have done things uh, you know uh, uh, much differently. And the, the irony is that one can make an argument that President Biden actually went even farther than former President uh, Trump would have, hmm. um, because because there is just a, a unanimous feeling within the United States military and the intelligence community um, that we should not get out, you know, go down to actually zero. Um, uh, and so, you know, so, so ultimately I think that, that, you know, public opinion could have been satisfied with a plan of a small residual CT mm-hmm. force. We say we are done. We are acting as advisors and end of story. And, and, and I think actually that would have been accepted, um, because ultimately prior to what happened, you know, several days ago, there had not been a combat death in Afghanistan for quite some time. Yeah. Um, so we were on the right track. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's, you know, when we talk about what kind of what kind of, you know, force structure we could have had, I mean, again, uh, you know, this is this is the U.S. intelligence community. This is certainly U.S. military um, senior senior command advising very strongly for a certain number that I think would have uh, uh, yeah. allowed us to continue the CT mission. So let's go over just that quickly. Yeah, because what happens right now, the reason why we advocated for a force structure of two to three thousand, you know, with with SOF, with Special Operations Forces and IC, is to continue on the CT mission, and of course to be side by side with some of our Afghan, um, you know, military partners. We and so and that was the the, the, ter- the determination was that was the minimum uh, structure we could have in order to accomplish this goal of what not allowing Al Qaeda to reconstitute, helping the Afghan central government, the Afghan military, can still stave off the Taliban, maybe for one to five years. Who knows? Look what we have now. The exact opposite of that. We have a serious CT problem now. Um, there's been, you know, you know, Molly, you know, mentioned about kind of the kind of hyperbolic, you know, uh, uh, you know, stuff in, in in the media. So no, we're not going to have a 9/11 attack tomorrow. Um, you see a lot of that on the right. Senator Graham um, yeah. or or uh, or uh, Mitch McConnell the other day so, saying just these these crazy statements that you know that, that you know America is more dangerous now than we've ever been. Well, that's not in more danger now. That's actually not true, but. What we do have is an ungoverned space um, of a country run by a terrorist entity in which al-Qaeda members and, and, and Taliban have been released from prisons in the thousands. And so the United States does have a problem now. And so what we didn't have before, um, which was a serious CT problem in Afghanistan, we do have now. And, of course, put this into the context of we do – we should be pivoting towards hard targets, towards China, Russia – um, kind of, it's not called near peer competition. But it's near peer is now great power again. I mean, yes. they, they keep they're, they're changing the, <laughs> the name of Molly's newsletter. Um, but, exactly, greatpower.us. <laughs> but, but ultimately, guess what? We need to put resources on right now that we didn't have to two weeks ago. Counterterrorism in Afghanistan again. So it's 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 pretty incredible yeah. when you kind of look at um, how just these missteps have led us back to uh, a, a problem set that we really didn't have two weeks ago if we had kept that small residual force. Um, which we could have kept, kept the lid on things. And, and, and sorry, and just yeah. the nuance of it in all the stuff that Marcus talked about, which is it's not like we left and there's the stuff there if we decide to go back in in two weeks. We left, we rolled out 
35,000 of our intelligence assets and their families uh, because wow. we can't leave those guys there. They're going to die tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, so all the networks we built out, you know, Asylum and other places, uh, all the networks of women, of journalists, all these people who are like casual collection for us, essentially, mm-hmm. our best assets in the country to project values and to give us information, fleeing for the borders out already. Uh, all of the, you know, the the diplomatic and NGO and other presence from our allies and our partners has had to be pulled out. They're evacuating them now in these horrific, catastrophic things, local staff too. So every person that was really well-positioned, well-trained, and a lot of those people sat between the things. They understood the local dynamics. They had to deal with the crazies and the warlords and some of the Taliban guys locally, but still do the work in a way that allowed them to operate while partnering with the United States, people who really navigated that space smartly and in a, in a good way, all of that is back to zero. <laughs> so if we needed in two months to go back in, it's the special forces team you catapult from, you know, across the border at, with like a big pallet of cash and hope that they can find like some guys with pickup trucks and guns who will be like their first, you know, projection force. And it's, Unnecessary. I mean, at the very least, we could have left the 40,000 pickup trucks that we've abandoned as part of the arsenal that we're leaving to the Taliban. Just give the keys to random Afghan families so they can drive them across the border and evacuate themselves. I mean, it's just bananas yeah. what we have done in terms of erasing everything good that we did. And, and on you, the think, you know, in, in my world, and again, I'm, I'm much more narrowly focused. So, Somalia, you're 100% right. There's so much more than counterterrorism. <laughs> no, really. But, yeah. but I think every, you know, I wake up and think about, and I'm a little strange, yeah. I wake up and think about counterterrorism. That's what I've done my whole career. And so, you know, there's a triad of how we do, and this is going to sound very graphic, how we do manhunting. Okay. And we got really good at it. And the triad is human, human intelligence, signet, signet, signals intelligence, where, you know, it's intercepts listening to, to enemy communications, and then ISR, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance, which is eyes in the sky, you know, drones, planes, satellites. So, so you put those three things together, and we are a very effective counterterrorism uh, force, and Afghanistan's a perfect um, uh, example of that. So what did we lose in the last two weeks? Well, on the human side, we lost an enormous amount. So the embassy's gone. And that is – at every embassy, it's an intelligence collection platform. So there are no longer USIC members on the ground there. We also closed our bases. Now, that happened earlier, but the, the collapse of the bases, same thing. No more U.S. intelligence officers on the ground running agents. Um, okay, so that's that's bad. Uh, uh, but sometimes what, when that happens, we can rely on our partner force, which was the Afghan intelligence service. Um, and we use you know, principal agent, principal agent networks. We'll use them to collect. Well, guess what doesn't exist now? the Afghan intelligence service. So all of a sudden on the human side, we go from being in a pretty good position, a really good position a while ago when we had an embassy in many bases to an okay position with an embassy and an Afghan partner intelligence service to nothing. And that is pretty scary. Mm-hmm. And so, because there's nothing as, as I know you've had other guests on from the intelligence community, there's nothing like a human source. And so, you know, that really hurts us. Um, in terms of signals intelligence, can't get into it a lot, but but you know clearly not having U.S. government facilities on the ground not a good thing. And then with ISR with aircraft, I mean you know there's been a lot. I mean what you saw was when it, when people realized in the in the in the national security establishment, even in the administration, that we were going to go down to zero. There was this mad dash all around the region begging countries for basing rights for our aircraft. Um, which was not very successful. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, instead of having Bagram Air Base or other places in Afghanistan to fly ISR missions, overlooking, looking at CT, uh, in terms of counterterrorism, looking uh, you know, at terrorist uh, targets, um, it's going to be what they're calling now and what it's always been called an over-the-horizon capability of, of air assets flying from afar, which is just more difficult. 
It just is. Um, it's 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 more expensive. Um, it's, it, it takes a lot longer. Um, and guess what it also does? Mm. Those assets are not supposed to be doing CT anymore. They were supposed to be shifted to China, to Asia, um, uh, to great power competition, not near peer, yeah. to great power. And so, <laughs> so ultimately, you know, it's, it's, a, it's pretty remarkable what we've lost in, in terms of CT there. And so, you know, I, I see it, there's been a couple, um, you know, strikes recently. Obviously, there was against ISIL-K members uh, in Nangahar and then just the force protection strike um, yeah. against the suicide bomber uh, in, in Kabul. And, and so one of the things you see are people saying, see, we can still do this. Well, we're still there. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, if, if for another for, for the next 24, 24 hours. hours. Right. Um, yeah. And these are also very tactical strikes as yeah. well, especially the one in, inside Kabul. So I think on the counterterrorism piece, you know, we are in a, in a, in a much worse situation. It's not dire in terms of there's going to be another 9-11 tomorrow, yeah. but we're in some trouble. Um, and that is not the place that, that amazingly enough, President Biden wanted to be. Yeah. And so if they had, if they had left that residual force, it would not have been a, going back to the original question, it would not have been any zero heat domestically. Yeah. We're done. We're gone. War's over. But we're going to still have have forces forward, which we do all over the world. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I think the point that you bring up about how this withdrawal affects the total equilibrium of our national security, of our, of our counterterrorism and, uh, apparatus is extremely important, especially when you think about China and Russia, yeah. because that's not something that I think enters into the 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 the, well, the we conversation. we have finite resources, right? We have finite yeah. resources, and the fact that now, because of this returned threat in in Afghan in terrorism in Afghanistan, we now have have to shift resources massively to defending against that that would otherwise be spent on. Uh, just the, in the, yeah. in the, the quick soundbite, and yeah. you know, uh, this is in my in my you know world of all my former friends doing counterterrorism. Are you effing kidding me? Was text I was getting, meaning back to Afghanistan. Like, are, this is wow. unbelievable. We're back at this again. Wow. When we were positioned not to be. Because because nobody disagrees that, that you know, China is, a, is, is, is an enormous strategic threat. We do need to pivot. But U.S. Air Force has, you know, limited number yeah. of assets. CIA has a limited budget. Um, are we going to train case officers to learn, you know, uh, Dari and Pashto again? Really? Uh, when we want to have them go to learn Chinese and Russian? Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. You can find Mark and Molly on the internet by following the links in today's show notes. And stay tuned for part two of this conversation tomorrow. There are a number of ways you can help support this work and our mission. You can donate, which helps support the huge team and the effort that goes into every Politicology episode on the main feed. Or you can join the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist, look further down the road than everyone else, and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. If you're not already in our Politicology Plus community, you can unlock this premium content at politicology.com plus. You can share this episode or one of your favorites, with friends, family, and colleagues. Podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth, and this helps us reach more people. Finally, you can rate five stars in the Apple Podcasts app and leave us a review there, because this helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. 
I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.